turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. I know it seems like we're moving slowly through Luke. When we get to those last few chapters, we're going we're gonna to be able to speed up as we get back into narrative. But Jesus is teaching, and um, we, need to, we need to see what he's saying as he dishes it out. And we can't cover too much ground or we'll lose each other in the process. Uh, so this morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 18 and a, and a parable Jesus tells in verses 1 through 8. Now, I don't, want you to, I don't want you to forget what we saw last week because what we're about to see in this parable is really a continuation of what we saw last week at the end of Luke chapter 17. So, so pay attention. If you weren't here last week, here's your brief snapshot of what we saw. First of all, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. He is among us. He is among us. The kingdom has been fulfilled. Okay? So are you with me? The second thing that we saw is that though the kingdom has come and is fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ, the kingdom is yet to come. It is yet to come, and it will be consummated at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So Jesus tells his followers, the kingdom is here, the kingdom is in your midst, I have come, the kingdom has been fulfilled, and even though it's here, it's still not yet here all the way it's going to be consummated when I come again. But, but right now it's within your grasp. Right now it's within your reach. Right now it's in your midst. And Satan is going to do everything he can to keep you either out of the kingdom or ineffective in the kingdom. And he's going to do it primarily by deceiving you, by sending false prophets and false teachers among you to deceive you. He's going to do it primarily by distracting you with the things of this world and this life. And he's going to do it primarily by misplacing your desires from the eternal to the temporal. That's what we saw last week. Now, as we come to Luke 18, Jesus is continuing that same discussion. If you notice in verse 1, when we read it of Luke 18, no scene change, no audience change. He's continuing his teaching. And it's here in chapter 18 that we learn our number one tactic for resisting deception, our number one tactic for resisting distractions, our number one tactic for resisting and shifting the desires of our flesh from the things of this world to the things of eternity, and that is prayer. He's telling, telling his followers through this parable in Luke 18, 1 through 8, that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. And I want you to notice as we read this, Always pray and don't lose heart as you wait for the consummation of the kingdom. So he's still on the same topic. You're in the kingdom, pray until the kingdom's consummated at my coming. Luke chapter 18, let's read verses 1 through 8. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. 
For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by her continual coming, she will wear me out. Verse 6, the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, when that kingdom is consummated, will he find faith on the earth? There's four things I want us to see in this parable in Luke chapter 18. The first, and this is unusual, is the point of the parable in verse 1. Jesus begins this parable not by hiding it, not by a mystery that surrounded so many of his parables. He, he's hiding things from those who think they know. And he's revealing it to those in his inner circle. Not in this case. In this case, he starts the parable out and he says, here's the point of the parable, verse 1. He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Now think about this. Jesus has just said the kingdom's here, but it's not here. The kingdom's been fulfilled in my coming to Bethlehem, and my coming to you now, but the kingdom will only be consummated when I come again. In the meantime, don't lose heart. Pray. Don't lose heart, but pray. And not just pray, but at all times pray. Now, if Jesus meant what Jesus said, then what Jesus is saying to us as we wait for His coming, as we wait for the consummation of the kingdom, He's saying to us, don't lose heart at all times, at all times pray. Now, if we take that literally, that means that we should be praying right now. What does Jesus mean? He means, first of all, that we should always be in the spirit of prayer. Always be in the spirit of prayer. He doesn't mean that every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, you need to be in your prayer closet, pouring out your petitions to the Lord and praying. Because prayer is not the only thing in the Christian life. There's scripture intake. There's worship. There's fellowship. There's ministry to the body. There's evangelism and disciple-making and missions that must happen. Prayer is not the only thing in the Christian life, but hear me. Prayer must permeate everything in the Christian life. So when Jesus says, at all times, pray, that means when you open the Scriptures, your Scripture intake must be permeated with prayer. When you worship your worship must be permeated with prayer. When you fellowship, your fellowship must be permeated with prayer. Your ministry, your missions, your evangelism, your disciple making, all needs to be permeated with prayer. We pray focused prayers in private. Don't hand me this stuff of, well, you know, I don't really ever pray seriously. I just pray all the time. No, there has to be a time where you do business with God. And out of that private intercession, supplication, and business with God flows the ability to voice and utter prayers all throughout the day. When asked how much time he spent in prayer, George Mueller replied, hours every day. But I live in the spirit of prayer. I pray as I walk, when I lie down, when I rise, and the answers are always coming. So when Jesus says, we ought always to pray. 
He, he means always be in a spirit of prayer. He not only means that we should always be in a spirit of prayer, but we should pray persistently. When we ask God for something once, that doesn't mean we should not ask again. If we're going to prevail in prayer, we must persist. We can't give up. C.H. Spurgeon said this, Too many prayers are like boys' runaway knocks. You know how boys would go to your door and knock on it and run? Think that's cute? Says too many prayers are like that. They're like boys' runaway knocks. Given and then the giver is away before the door can be opened. Oh, for grace to stand foot to foot with the angel of God and never, never, never relax our hold, feeling that the cause we plead is one in which we must be successful, for souls depend on it. The glory of God is connected with it. The state of our fellow men is in jeopardy. And he's re- he is referring back to Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 to 30, where Jacob... Just listen to this. Jacob is left alone, and a man, the Bible says, wrestled with him until daybreak. But this wasn't just any man. This was not just any man. This was the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is almost always Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So Jacob is alone, and now Jesus shows up on the scene in Genesis 32, and he wrestles with Jacob until daybreak. In verse 25 it says, when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, when Jesus saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Peniel, and he was limping on his thigh. Now... If you get in your mind here that Jacob was one tough guy, you've missed the point. Because when I get in the floor with my seven-year-old, and he just won't quit, and he won't quit, and he won't quit, and he keeps coming back, and he keeps coming back, it's not because I can't take him. I mean, trust me, I can touch the socket of his thigh and take him down. And a mommy's like this big, right? But the wrestling match could go on for, for ages. Because he just won't quit. That's the picture you should get. Not as though Jacob is some real tough guy, but that Jesus is the loving father who's allowing his son to wrestle with him and just to make sure he understands, I can still take him. How many of you dads know that's important? You know, as his boys get a little bigger, you need to slam them every now and again good so they know, dad can still take me. And that way when they get bigger and you get older and they can take you, they still have a little bit of fear in you, right? You know. So, so Jesus is wrestling, and he's letting him come at him. And just to make sure he knew who was in charge the whole time, he just touches him, alters him for life. But the point is, Jacob would not let him go. That's the kind of prayer Jesus is calling for between the fulfillment of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom. A persistent prayer that will not let him go. Thirdly, pray frequently. Pray frequently. The unjust judge 
as we read, felt as though by her continual coming, she would weary him. This widow was not giving up. She was coming regularly with her plea. The psalmist said in Psalm 55, 17, Evening, morning, and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Pray frequently. When we were working with Saudis and Yemenese students back in Mississippi, I put this little app on my phone that they all had, and it was a call to prayer. And I thought, every time this thing goes off, I know they're going to pray. So I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray for them. And I don't went well until, you know, I'm in Walmart and all of a sudden, oh, yeah, it goes off and everybody looks over at me. I'm like, sorry, <laughs> trying to mute this thing. That happened more than once, by the way. Everybody kind of give me the stink eye in there. But man, you realized how frequently five times a day is and how infrequently we really just fail to stop and pray. Jesus said, in the time between the fulfillment and the consummation. Don't lose heart. Keep praying. Keep praying until I return. Be in the spirit of prayer. Pray persistently. Pray frequently. This is the point of the parable. And that's where we start. Now let's look at the parable. In verses 2 and 3, we see the people. The people in this parable. It says, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. These two primary characters needed no explanation in first century Jerusalem. Everyone knew both of these characters. Everybody knew a dishonest judge and everybody knew a poor widow. They were common parts of society in this day, in this age. Jesus describes this judge as a dishonest judge. He says he did not fear God. In, in, in essence, Jesus is saying, just think of an atheist. This guy has no fear of God. It is as though he doesn't even believe that God exists. And not only is he like an atheist and he doesn't fear God, but he doesn't respect man. And in the literal Greek, that, that phrase there, does not respect man, can literally be translated be put to shame. He can't be put to shame. How many of you know somebody who just has no shame? This is this guy. You can't embarrass him. You can't shame him into doing the right thing. He doesn't fear God, therefore you can't read him a scripture to get his attention. And he doesn't have any shame or honor, so you can't shame him into making the right decision. This guy is a nasty, nasty judge. And we see a, not only a dishonest judge, but a destitute widow. This widow keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming, which is Jesus' way of pointing out, this woman really needed justice from her adversary. This isn't just something I want or desire. This is something she needs. She can't live without it. So she keeps going back to this dishonest judge, this judge who does not fear God, this judge who can't be shamed. She just won't quit. And she apparently has no man in her life because a woman was not really allowed to go to court. Her husband would go to court for her. And since she's a widow, her brother would go to court for her. Or one of her sons would go to court for her. Or her uncle would go to court for her. And the fact that she is going back on her own over and over again points out not only does she really need what she's going after, but she has no one, absolutely no one in her life to turn to to help her. She is helpless Desperate, powerless, and destitute. These are the people in this parable. 
Thirdly, we see the power of this parable. Verses 4 and 5. The power of this widow comes out here in verses 4 and 5. It says, For a while he, the, the dishonest judge, was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. What was the widow's power? Notice what her power was not. It was not her clever or convincing arguments. There's not a whole lot clever or convincing about give me legal protection from my opponent. It just is what it is. She's not making a clever, convincing argument. She doesn't sit down and and draw up a long and drawn-out argument. It's not the eloquence of her argument. She doesn't have big words, flattering words. She just comes in with a simple request from the heart. And often that simple cry from our heart is more powerful than the eloquence of our arguments. John Bunyan said, When thou prayest, rather let thy heart be without words than thy words without heart. We shouldn't just say our prayers. We need to pray our prayers. This widow comes not with eloquence, not with clever or convincing arguments. What was her power? Her power was her persistence. The reason he responds is not due to the regard he has for her. It's not due to the regard that he has for justice. The reason he responds is due to the regard he has for himself. She's going to wear me out. The Greek word translated wear me out is a boxing term, and it means to strike someone with a full blow in the eye. It's like every time I see this woman coming, I know I'm going to take a right hook to the eye, and I'm just tired of it. Give me some rest. This woman's not just troublesome, she's painful to the judge. We've got a lot of weapons to use with God in our arsenal of prayer. But let's not forget the all-conquering instrument of persistence. To go to Him and go to Him and go to Him. We see it if you just turn back a few pages in Luke chapter 11. In verse 5, Jesus tells another parable that we saw some time ago. In Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse number 5, he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Now, the greatest shameful act that could happen in this culture was to have a guest come and not show great hospitality. And you still see that in Middle Eastern culture today the first thing they ever do is want to invite you to their house to eat something it's just hospitality culture and and for them not to be able to offer hospitality is a shameful shameful thing so he's like i've got to go next door even if it is midnight i've got to have some bread i didn't make it to the super walmart this afternoon on my way home from work i've got to go borrow some bread at least so i can put before this guy so from inside when he knocks on the friend's door The friend answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. In other words, we've been wrestling with this little minion for the past 45 minutes and finally got it to go to sleep. We're not going to get up and disturb it. 
Go find your bread elsewhere. And Jesus said, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence, he'll get up and give him as much as he needs. This guy keeps knocking on the door. Your kid's going to wake up anyway. I'm going to wake your kid up by beating on this door. All right, honey, try to keep it asleep. I'm just going to get up and go get the guy the bread. Well, go away. And Jesus says, so I say to you, ask. And the Greek is to keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Seek, and the Greek is keep on seeking, and you will find. Knock, and the Greek is keep on knocking, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks and keep on asking receives, and he who seeks and keeps on seeking will find. And to him who knocks and keeps on knocking, it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The power of this widow's prayer is persistence. Now, some of you think, well, I've been persistently praying for Mercedes-Benz SUV for years now. And Kenneth Copeland told me that if I would just send in a seed... I, you know, I would get it. And my seed bought him another jet. So I, I just don't know what to do now. Listen very carefully. If you are sure that it is a right thing for which you're asking, and most likely if you're praying for Mercedes SUV, it's not the right thing to be praying for. If you're sure it's a right thing for which you're asking, plead now plead at noon plead at night plead on don't ever give up because some of the power of our prayers is found in our persistency you know what persistency does i'm getting ahead of myself a little bit but i'm just going to say it now our persistency does not wear god out don't don't get in your mind well i just got to wear god out i'm gonna pester him till he gives me what i want our persistency does not wear god out what our persistency does is it builds us up And it shows the reality that our dependence is on God. Our dependency is on Him. Our refuge is found in Him. Our help is found in Him. Our hope is found in Him. I'm tempted to create a GoFundMe. I am tempted to to start writing a blog. I'm tempted to go to the bank. I'm tempted to do all of these things and handle it myself and take matters into my own hands. And sometimes we, we do need to take action. But there are times when God wants to remind us that He is our supplier, He is our refuge, He is our strength, He is our help, He is our God, and He will make you come back to Him and come back to Him and come back to Him and come back to Him him until you get it through your thick skull that you can't fix everything and you desperately need Him. And then, then He answers. And we think we've done something. But he's done something in us. The promise, verses 6 through 8, we see is a twofold promise. The Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. 
as the lightning flashes from the east is to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. It will come quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's kind of a promise warning wrapped up here in this last part of the parable. First part is a promise that final justice will be served. He said, I tell you on that day, he will bring about justice for them quickly. Don't get in your mind that God is like the unjust judge, the dishonest judge. That's not the point of the parable. Jesus is not like the dishonest judge that we have to go back to, go back to, go back to, and try to give a black eye to get him to give us what we desperately need. He is a good, good father. And he is good enough that he wants to give us the kingdom. He wants to give us the kingdom. In fact, in Luke chapter 12 and verse 32, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So what do we do as we wait for our father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom of God? We pray. We find ourselves at all times praying as we wait and we pray in confidence and we pray in hope and we pray with the assurance that God is going to come and redeem us from this earth and He is going to exercise justice. And His justice will be just, even if you don't agree with it. There's final justice is one part of the promise. And the part of the warning has to do not with final justice, but with faith in Jesus. Notice what he says in the very latter part of verse 8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When the kingdom is consummated, the kingdom is fulfilled, you're waiting, you're waiting. When the kingdom is consummated, when Christ comes to set up his kingdom... Will he find this widow's kind of persevering faith? Will he find this type of prayer? Jesus is asking, when I do come to consummate the kingdom, and and it's likely to be a long time, and as we've seen it has been, will there be anybody left on the earth like this persistent widow? So the implication seems to be prayer and faith stand together and they fall together. If we lose heart and drift away from prayer, then it gives evidence that we are losing faith because when the Son of Man comes, if He doesn't find this kind of persistent prayer, it's evidence that there is no faith. But if our faith grows strong and our prayer life grows strong with it, then it gives evidence that when Christ comes, He will find faith. Prayer is rooted in faith. So as we wait, what do we do? As we wait, we pray. And what do we pray for? Mercedes SUVs, personal jets, mansions, bigger bank accounts, fatter 401ks. What do we pray for? You know what we pray for? We pray for our children and for the children that were on this platform today like their souls literally depend on it. We pray for our spouses. We pray for our marriages. We pray for our families. 
We pray for our pastors. We pray for our missionaries. We pray for awakening. We pray for revival. We pray for God to grow our church numerically, spiritually, financially, ministerially, missionally. We pray that God would do something so great that when it happens, we're not tempted to give credit to any man, but we give all glory to God. We pray that God would show Himself strong on our behalf and that God would advance His kingdom from here to the least reached people on planet earth, from our little households to the forest foreign jungles of Papua New Guinea, that God's kingdom would advance and that the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations and that the end would come and the kingdom would be consummated and we would be found faithful. Do you see how little and sparse and useless a prayer for a private jet is? We can be praying prayers like that that matter for eternity. When Jesus comes, are we going to be found holding the ropes in prayer and pleading for the souls of our children and the lost around us. We're about to have a church retreat. And close to 160 people are going to be at Shaco Springs at the end of this month. And here's what the leaders of that church retreat are asking your pastors to participate in, and the other pastors that are speaking, and I want to include you in on it. Every Wednesday in May, the challenge is to fast and to pray for awakening and revival. To fast and pray for awakening and revival. Can you fast at least a meal or two meals? Or at least give it what the Muslims give it until dark? Or maybe a full 24 hours. But that just as you start your day, pray for revival, pray for awakening. As you go through your day, voice those prayers for awakening and for revival and for God to do a work in our midst. Even if you're not going to the church retreat, don't you want the folks that go to come back filled with the Spirit, revived and awakened so that it can spill over into this place? The way God works, He may spark it here. And not there while we're gone. Do we need awakening? Do we need revival? Do we need to see God do something in our day, in our culture? Would you join us in prayer? And listen, prayer is rooted and connected to faith. So if you're sitting out here this morning, if you're sitting out here this morning, and you think you're going to make a list and just say, well, I'm going to start praying and, because that's what the preacher said to do. And you don't have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you. If He has not given you peace with God, if He has not written your name in the Lamb's book of life and transformed your life and made you a new creation, that means He's turned your life, your thought process, upside down and shaken You until stuff starts falling out of your pockets and out of your life to make a difference. And you can't pray. The only prayer you need to pray is to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And listen, He is good. He's good. So here's what He did for you. He said, 
you're going to do a lousy job of keeping my standard. Actually, lousy is a, is a really a, a, a weak way to put it. You, you're going to do an infinitely lousy job of keeping my standard because my standard for you, my requirement for you, my demand of you is absolute perfection, holiness, sinlessness, righteousness. And you are going to sin and fall short of my glorious standard. So here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm not going to send you a list of rules and do's and don'ts. I'm going to come to earth in human form and I am going to take the requirements and I'm going to fulfill them for you. I'm going to keep every commandment perfectly. I'm going to live the perfect, righteous, sinless, spotless life that I demand of you and he did that in the person of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? And you know what? You are so infinitely wretched and sinful that what you deserve, what you deserve is to be slashed with a whip until your organs are exposed. You deserve to be nailed to a cross until you suffocate and your heart stops and you deserve to spend eternity in hell forever and ever darkness alone consumed with unending wrath. That's what you deserve. So so here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to go to the cross. And I'm going to take a lashing until my organs are exposed. And I'm going to take nails on a cross. And as I suffocate under the weight of my Father's wrath and judgment against your sin, my blood is going to be shed and your sin debt will be paid in full. I'm going to pay your debt. And I am going not only to pay your debt, but I'm going to fill up your bank account, your spiritual bank account, so that when you die, when you die and you stand before me, I will not see your sin, I will not see the things that you've done, but I will only see my perfect righteousness and holiness. That's the way this works. That's where faith begins, and that's where prayer comes from. It's rooted in, founded in, and fueled by the gospel message of Jesus Christ, and that gospel doing a work in your life. Has God done a work in your life? Do you believe that He lived the life God requires of you, that He died the death your sin deserves, that He rose from the dead? If you believe that this morning, then you can turn away from your sin, turn away from your sin... Shuck the old friends, shuck the old habits, shuck the old attitudes, and run after Christ who will embrace you with open arms and will shower you with love and forgiveness and will give you peace with God and will fill you with faith that will pray without ceasing until He comes again. We want that for you. We pray that for you. I want to ask you to pray for it for yourself. Would you bow with me? Listen, as you bow your heads... Andy's going to come and stand over here. Michael's going to come stand over here. Miss Lisa's going to play softly. And if you need someone to pray with you, if you need someone to talk with you, if you need to come to this altar and pray as Miss Lisa plays softly, you can do that right now. Right now.
Maybe you need to pray for your children. Maybe you need to pray for some of these children. Maybe you need to pray for your marriage. Maybe you need to pray for your church. Maybe you need to pray for awakening. Maybe you need to pray for revival. Maybe you need to come and take Michael by the hand or Andy by the hand and say, listen, I do not have peace with God. I've never been transformed by the power of the gospel. I need Jesus. I need assurance. I need help. Will you pray with me? Will you talk with me? Will you help me? Right now, I want to invite you to do that. With every head bowed, pray for those around you. I want to give you a moment. If you need to respond in any way, process this message. Would you pray for those around you right now? If you know the Lord, if you know Christ and He's transformed your life, would you just pray for those around you that God may be speaking to, that He would grant them repentance, that He would grant them faith, that He would grant them new life right now? Would you pray for them, for their salvation, for their souls? Pray for your children, your grandchildren. Would you pray for your spouse, your marriage? God would heal it, help it, strengthen it, bless it. you pray for your families that God would intervene in the busyness and the craziness and the distractions unify your family around a passion for God and his word and his work would you pray for your church that God would do a work that is solely for His glory, that He would get the praise for it? Would you pray for the nations that God would raise up laborers to go into the harvest? Harvest is plentiful. The laborers, they're few. There are people who have still never heard the name of Jesus. Do you believe that? They're drinking Coca-Colas that came from America, but they've never heard the name of Jesus. Pray. Would you pray for our church retreat? The messages that will be proclaimed to the children, to the youth, to the adults. Father God, we thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy, for, for seeing fit to include us and allow us to approach your throne of grace boldly. 
and to pray for lost souls that we know, that we love, that we care for, that, that we can pray for our children, we can pray for our marriages, we can pray for our families, we can pray for our church, we can pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth, even to the very ends of the earth as it is in heaven. God, we pray that we will be found faithful when you come again. And that you would stir in us a desire and a motivation to pray. And that you would stir us to arise as a church and proclaim your glory. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.